Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering escapes to the beautiful San Juan Islands this spring. Convenient daily 45-minute flights to San Juan Island, Orcas, and Lopez Islands from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm your host, Bill Radke. A judge 2,000 miles from Seattle could force an abortion pill off the market. Washington State is doing a workaround. And here to discuss all the week's news is Seattle Times health reporter Elise Takahama. Welcome back, Elise. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. McClatchy, Washington State government reporter Shauna Sowersby. Hi, Shauna. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. And political analyst and contributing columnist, Joni Balter. Hi, Joni. Hello there. How are you? Good, good. I'm glad to see you all, and you can see us too, because we're live streaming the show on YouTube and Facebook. So join us, and let's get into the news of this week. Washington, as I mentioned, is stockpiling the abortion drug mifepristone. There is a pending court case in Texas that could limit this drug's availability. And this week, Governor Inslee announced the state has access to roughly a four-year supply of this drug that's used for medication abortions. Inslee says the state has stocked up to ensure access to the drug in case this Texas ruling leads to it being taken off the market. We have the product. It's legal. We took it legally. The judge has not barred our ability to do that. Okay, so let's sort this out. And Elise, our healthcare reporter, I'll start with you. I want to make sure all our listeners understand what is mifepristone. Sure. So, uh, yeah, mifepristone is one of two very common abortion pills in the U.S. They're usually taken together to end early pregnancies and what's often called medication abortion. Um, basically, the the first one, mifepristone, usually blocks, blocks the hormone progesterone, and that causes the lining of the uterus to break down, and that, that stops the pregnancy. And then the second pill is called mesoprostol, which is not a part of this Texas lawsuit, um, but that, that usually comes in and empties the uterus out, um, and doctors have described that process as being pretty similar to, to something like an early miscarriage. Um, so the, both of these, uh, the, this was mesoprostol was first by the FDA back in 2000, shown to be highly effective, at least 90%, 95% of the time. Um, complications are really rare, um, and no deaths related to the pill have been reported in the U.S. Um, so that's, that's what we're talking about here. So then why is there a challenge in Texas that could keep this drug off the market? So, yeah, the, this lawsuit out in Texas, it's um, being headed by anti-abortion activists who are concerned that the FDA basically rushed into approval back in 2000. And, and they think that there needs to be more work to be there needs to be more research, more work. Um, and that's why they're filing this lawsuit against the FDA, basically trying to eliminate um, its sale and its use in, in all 50 states, which could, of course, affect Washington as well. Right. And uh, Sean, it sounds like uh, no one would be surprised if this judge in Texas Uh, went along with this blocking of uh, mifepristone. So back to Washington state's stockpiling it. This sounds like a a hasty workaround. How does it work? And is it legal? Yeah, so um, basically the Department of Corrections is the one that um, has been uh, contacted by the governor, um, by the attorney general, and... um, Basically, the Department of Corrections was the one who had the authority to order all of that medication. Um, They're now trying to um, pass some legislation that would basically set the mechanisms in place for that to be distributed to everybody in Washington. Yeah. Corrections Department can get it because they have a pharmacy license. Correct. Part of what they do. Um, Okay. Uh, Joni, any any more thoughts on the stockpiling of uh, this drug? I think they, would you say four years supply? They, between three and four years. Uh, they have 30,000 doses, which they think is about three years uh, for the Department of Corrections. And I guess the University of Washington uh, has put in for 10,000 more doses. Mm. So it doesn't matter so much exactly how long it will last. What matters is it's kind of a 
I believe, a cool move that represents the wishes of Washington voters to be able to continue to have access to abortion. This state is not wishy-washy about this topic, not even slightly. They voted, depending on how far back you want to go in time, three or four times, to say that these voters— you know, we're liberal here, we're libertarian here, that they don't want the government making this decision. So, frankly, for a one-two punch from um, our leaders of this state, Governor Jay Inslee and the Attorney General Bob Ferguson, I know we're going to get to that a little bit later, but we're playing pretty pretty strong offense and defense here in the sense the defense would be for the governor uh, to say, okay, I understand the landscape. This Texas judge is likely to rule in a certain way, but I'm not going to let him and all these other states that are doing a variety of other things limit the right to abortion for women of Washington state. And just to briefly uh, uh, mention what the state attorney general is talking about is he's challenging uh, the FDA approval, uh, he along with 17 other states, and Washington is leading the case to say you were too restrictive to this drug. You you made too you you limited access for our Washington women. So Elise, can you do you have any sense of how this back and forth about mifepristone is going to work out? And maybe we should remind listeners that the, that an abortion can happen even with one of the two drugs. Right. Yeah. I, it's so hard to say. I mean, the this abortion landscape is changing so rapidly. I mean, even in the past year, we've seen so many different states try, um, try in, in their own ways to either expand or restrict access. Um, and so as, as, as Joni said, you know, uh, Attorney General Ferguson in Washington is, is really leading the charge in, in trying to secure this drug for Washingtonians um, and for everyone else, all these other uh, states who are involved in this lawsuit. So I think it's, you know, rapidly changing. We're still at this point, I think the last I heard on the Ferguson lawsuit was that um, there's a hearing on their motion for a preliminary injunction last week, and we're still awaiting a judge's decision on that. Um, but, you know, we, we know that this can change really quickly. So everyone has just been kind of waiting and watching. Shauna, how much does this have to do with stockpiling something for Washingtonians, and how much does this also have to do with people coming here for abortions from Idaho and other places? Well, I believe um, the statistics that the Department of Health gave were that um, 800 Washingtonians get abortions every year. Um, And so I think they were factoring that in as well as factoring in a bigger percentage of having those pills on hand for people that might be traveling out of state from places such as Idaho, which just passed some really extreme anti-abortion laws. Yeah. In fact, didn't they didn't they make it a crime for to, to help a minor come here to come across state lines and hide that from their parents? Correct. They did. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I believe that was just signed earlier this week on Tuesday when Inslee had actually uh, written a letter and sent it out to Governor Little in Idaho. Mm-hmm. Look, so there's there's no doubt what's going on here. Various states, ever since the Supreme Court ruling uh, against a woman's right to choose about a, what about a year ago, um, ever since then, states are trying to um, sort of one up each other with some of them with how conservative they can be, how, in my view, how cruel they can be to women who need an abortion. And Idaho, look at this, you know. Uh, they're making it so that a minor cannot be transported to this state or another one that's nearby, maybe Oregon. Uh, it becomes a crime. Oh, my gosh. Really? And so in this state, when you think about what our leaders are doing, Washington Governor Jay Inslee, I mean, he's also saying loud and clear, Washington wants to be a leader in providing this service to people who can come here uh, and want to have this service. So the stockpiling uh, is for is for anybody, as I understand it. And it makes sense because this is really going to be divided in states that do this and states that don't. Really matters where you live. It really matters who you elect sometimes. Mm-hmm. OK, um, Elise, do we feel we we covered the topic for now? Catching people up on this drug and reaction to it? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah. as Shauna said, that Idaho decision uh, this week was the, was the most recent kind of piece of information um, that we're seeing, at least in the Northwest area. But like I said, I mean, things are changing pretty quickly. So we're just going to kind of continue to keep an eye on this. Yes, we will. Meanwhile, this week, also in Olympia, Shauna, our state house voted to ban the manufacture importing and sale of semi-automatic guns like AR-15s. The bill calls them assault weapons. Can we assume the Senate is going to pass this and Governor Inslee will sign it? Yes. uh, Senate leaders um, have been pretty open about their desire to get this passed. So um, I think that It'll pass, you know, probably with a lot of amendments or a lot of amendments will be recommended by Republicans, of course. But I I don't really foresee any of those being added on the floor at this point. Um, So, yeah, we're just kind of waiting at any point this day for them to bring it up in the Senate. So I'm told, like you, that they do have the votes. It's going to pass. Uh, And I don't understand how you could not want this to pass based on some of what we're seeing. You know, this has been a really bad year. They're all bad years, but this one has been exceptionally bad for all these mass shootings. Um, as as I'm sure Elise knows, that gun violence is the leading cause of death among children now, surpassed uh, car accidents. I mean, what kind of a country allows that? So I think that um, that this, this law will pass. Uh, there is an extra Democratic vote in Olympia this year. Uh, the, sort, the sort of stars have aligned. This, this has been before lawmakers for, is it seven or eight years? Seven Something like years, that. Yeah. But for a long time. And, and I will be proud to live in a state that does that. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with, uh, with you, Joni. I mean, it's, it's interesting that this similar um, similar measures have tried to be taken before and this is really the first year that that you know the it's gone through the passion and the motion behind this ban is really pretty strong I mean we all remember last fall the student was killed at Ingram High School um, and I think community members are still really shaken and reeling by that um, so I know that I mean we we've seen even students throughout the whole the whole country and and in Seattle as well kind of rally for more gun control here. Um, there were there were marches last summer as well, um, and I think all of that passion is really um, really significant and makes sense as to why there's some more momentum potentially behind this this time around. Shauna, I don't even know if this is answerable, but I'm curious whether this is how really how legislation works. I guess I'm asking this to all of you. You know, we had the Muckleteo shooting, what, like seven years ago. And it's been, as you say, the numbers seem to keep growing. I haven't really tracked them. But do you think that it's a matter of, oh, well, this shooting, that's really crossed the line? Or is it has public opinion really changed? Um, is it just uh, is it individual lawmakers getting personally comfortable with regulation? I'm just curious if anybody has any theories as to as to you could say, why now? Well, look at this shooting. But it's they've been going on a long time. So why now? Right. Um, I mean, I think, um, you know, I I agree. I just I think that there is momentum for it now there. Um, you know, we've had shooting mass shootings, unfortunately, for several years now. Um, I don't know, again, if they're getting worse or not. But I think. Um, part of that momentum this year in the legislature anyway is just because we do have we know we have the votes, um, you know, to get it passed or Democratic lawmakers know that they have the votes to get it passed. They do have even a little stronger majority than they did last time. Around. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's true. that's true. Well, I think when you talk about public opinion, specifically, if you're talking about Washington state, our voters are not um, unequivocal about this. They have voted three times on uh, gun safety initiatives. We've talked about that before. Um, but I think maybe nationally it's reaching a sort of a crescendo mm-hmm. as well. I mean, this is this is a such a weird issue for this reason. The voters are way ahead of the politicians nationwide on this. They just are. And they have been for a really long time. I, I haven't seen a, the latest number, but the numbers have been strong. People want common sense gun safety rules. Hmm. Okay, then this... Uh so this assault weapons ban, so-called, is at least one Republican Washington opponent called it unconstitutional, which you'd expect. But any opinions about whether it's going to stand up? Um, you know, it's it's really hard to say. Um, but 
I, I think there has been a question this whole time with Democratic lawmakers um, that that they themselves have even questioned the constitutionality of it. But mm. I, I think that, again, there's so much momentum going forward that they're kind of willing to move forward in such a way that they could deal with the constitutional aspect of it later. Mm. And the ban would go into effect right away. It's After like Ensley signs, yeah. Which is not always the case, right? It's, it's, is it kind of an emergency? Uh, or is that standard for uh, the governor to sign it and then it's, it's in effect? Um, not all the time. Mm. There's... Uh, definitely been provisions. You know, there was a, um, I, I believe we had another ban last year. Um, I can't, it's not coming to my head right away, but it was another gun ban that went into effect in July right. last year being signed. But I think that that perfectly kind of demonstrates the urgency um, mm-hmm. that our leaders see to that that would go into effect right away as soon as it hits Inslee's desk and it's signed. So nine other states have these these laws. Uh, Illinois became the latest one to do that, and they have historically been upheld. And don't forget, um, the U.S. government, Congress, had an assault weapons ban until it didn't. That's right. Um, Expired. The gun safety folks think this is going to be challenged, and they think they're going to prevail. They, of course, have to say that. But And think about our own Supreme Court. We have a pretty sane state Supreme Court. So I, (laughs) I shudder to think if this went up to the U.S. Supreme Court, but I'm going with the optimistic, you know, challenge to our court. Okay. Anything else on um, AR-15 ban in Washington state? Uh, It heads to the Senate now. It sounds like we expect that to pass and for the governor to sign it and for it to go right into effect. We are covering the news of the week for you here on Week in Review. We're going to take a little break and we're going to uh, get back to another bill, Shauna, that you wrote about. And we're going to take up e-scooters uh, we may need to use a French accent uh, for some of that discussion. Scooter. Scooter, uh, <laughs> after we take a break. Right back to you on Week in Review. You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review. Good job. You can also stream the show on YouTube and Facebook. We have Seattle Times health reporter Elise Takahama with us, political analyst Joni Balter, McClatchy, Washington State government reporter Shauna Sowersby. And Shauna, you wrote this week about a bill that has passed the state house that would shield public school employees and state agency employees who are domestic violence survivors. They would not be subject to the usual public disclosure rules. Um, which sounds well-intentioned. It's more complicated than that. How would this work, Shauna, and why are some big names, including the Seattle Times, lobbying against this? Right. I mean, there's no doubt that um, domestic violence survivors should be protected in any way they can. Um, But where the problem is coming with this bill is that it would essentially create ghost employees um, within state agencies so that if a reporter, for example, goes to pull public records, this person would not appear at all. Um, And so the reason, you know, uh, even I believe my editor even um, wrote a letter letter to our senator, um, and I know the Seattle Times has gone down to um, testify on this bill, Um, But the issue with that, you know, is just the concern that um, there could be some people that are maybe using this loophole um, to exempt themselves from public records. And we're already having some issues this year in the public records department as is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe we can get to that. We should probably explain why, how this works, how someone, how someone's personal information, their cell phone, their address can be you know, sought, used against them? What's what's the problem as it stands? Well, so to my knowledge, um, things like addresses, social security numbers, uh, t- telephone numbers, uh, those aren't even included anyway. Hmm. Um, but people's names are in there if they're using their real name um, to work for an agency. And I, th- I think the thought is that Uh, bad actors could be pulling those records to learn more about these people that are being protected underneath, you know, Mm -hmm. who have a, a, who are domestic violence survivors. Yeah. Maybe someone stalking them. Sure. Et cetera. Yeah. And so the opposition to this, uh, we mentioned uh, coming from some 
in the media why what when you say ghost employee and Sean had mentioned ghost employees Joni what do you think is the well, so one of the problems and this is how Jonathan Martin who's uh, investigations editor at the Seattle Times a regular on this show true uh, he was saying like say you had a state patrol sergeant uh, who's accused of sexual harassment and rape this is a story that that the Seattle Times worked on but this person if if this bill was left as it is, could actually protect themselves. If they got wind of this, say, they could protect themselves from disclosure by claiming that, that they're a victim of this. And then suddenly, to ghost, goodbye records. And so the Seattle Times, when it's searching, is or everyone else, when they're searching, is limited from that from that search. And so... What would be an example of where the media would... Well, I'm saying they're they're they going really through state records and they can't find anything on the state employee. And so because they can't find anything, it makes the investigation that much harder. Yeah. I mean, they can still do a story somehow, some way, but it's going to be greatly lim- limited. My understanding is that there's a media carve out now within this bill. I, um, I'm not entirely certain it's gone, but it's it's being considered um, or 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 it's been successful uh, to be part of the final bill, which, you know, would maybe take that concern away. Although it used to be simpler to say who was media and who wasn't than it is yeah, today. Yeah, that's, absolu- that's absolutely a good point because, it, yeah, who's media? Is everybody media? Is somebody with, you know, some kind of uh, a different agenda media? We don't know that. Well, and to that point as well, who gets to decide who is media and who's not media? Yep. Yep. Elise, anything to add? Any questions or reaction? Yeah, I mean, this is it's a really complicated one. I think Sean has done a really great job covering this. I mean, it's it's like the, these points are are very valid in terms of wanting to um, make sure that, you know, these public employees are still accountable. Um, but, you know, it's it's not insignificant wanting to protect um, these survivors of domestic assault. I think that's something that should not be taken lightly. Um, I think folks with sexual violence centers, too, have have, you know, testified and said that, Part of part of why you know they want this to become easier is because burdening survivors with all these complicated requirements um, can sometimes um, maybe scare them into into not um, going through this process um, or just it being too burdensome basically um, to to go through or, or try to prove that you know you you need this protection. So that's something that I think um, you know at the heart this legislation is trying to get at, but. As uh, as we've talked about, I mean, there's there's some serious things to consider when we're talking about accountability as well. Okay, Shauna, you're saying thank you for uh, pointing out that cell phone numbers and addresses are already they're already shielded. Uh, You did mention that there is a, a backdrop here of legislators and or state agencies wanting to wanting the media, whoever the media are, to have less information. Would you tell us about that context? Yeah. So actually, um, at the opening of the session this year, um, we discovered that lawmakers have basically created a new new exemption called legislative privilege that they're using to um, exempt themselves from disclosure of public records. Um, so that's already kind of in the backdrop of everything else. And I think it's really, really important to point out, too, that lawmakers have not tried in the last few years to strengthen public records laws. They've actually tried to cut it down and tried to carve out little things here and there. So I think unlike, that's unlike really gun rights restrictions, there hasn't been a push to really tighten up our sunshine laws. Correct. Yeah. In fact, the Sunshine Committee um, might be dissolving later this year uh, as a result Um, They are the ones who are tasked with looking at exemptions and determining whether or not those should be added to the public records law. Um, They have not received any recommendations from lawmakers and any other recommendations that they have sent to lawmakers are being ignored. They haven't even been brought forward this year. It seems as if many folks in government want um, less sunshine at a time when we need more of it. Don't forget the... uh, Number of journalists working in, say, a place like Olympia has been reduced. The number of people covering City Hall reduced. And so it's like they're trying to make the job harder of the few folks who are covering these things. And again, you know, I used to 
write a lot about initiatives. And the one initiative that I know of in the sort of the whole history of initiatives in the state of Washington that got 72 percent in favor, we don't agree on anything at that level mm-hmm. in this state and you know, in most other states, but was the idea for a public disclosure act for sunshine as the as the best infectant, uh, disinfectant for government. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this is a Washington value. And I think the legislature is a little bit at odds with it sometimes lately. Would the news media know if suddenly, if this passes and suddenly lots of state workers are saying they are survivors of domestic violence at some unusual number? Would the media be able to to notice and prove that there's some kind of change in how many people are having their records available? I guess it's hard. It's, maybe it's hard. Depends on how tight it gets, yeah. you know. <laughs> Right? Okay. Uh, well, then we'll we'll watch that. That has passed the House, um, so I guess the Senate is next and be taking is considering it right now. Um, let's talk about another issue up for debate and move in more here into the city of Seattle. This week, prosecutors have charged a suspect with murder and assault in the fatal shooting of Elijah Lewis on Capitol Hill last weekend. Elijah Lewis was a 23 year old entrepreneur, community organizer, involved in the Africatown Community Land Trust in the Central District. Police say he was driving on Pine Street with his nine-year-old nephew, 5 p.m. He passed a man on a scooter and then tried to turn right onto Broadway. And, quote, there was some type of interaction. The window was rolled down. Words were exchanged. The man on the scooter shot three times into Lewis's car, and Lewis was killed. His nephew was wounded. Joni, you suggested we discuss this topic. Is this incident, um, is this about guns to you? Is this about cars or scooters? It sounds like it's about everything. You know, uh, I can't imagine a more un-Seattle thing than thinking about that the fact of is that people who are driving scooters are riding around with a loaded gun just in case they run into someone that they don't like or that they have words with. I mean, we were, remember, the gentle people who waited for the walk signal around here? Does this sound like Seattle to you? It doesn't sound like it to me. But anyway, about those scooters, uh, it raises, I mean, it occurred simultaneously with a ban from the city of Paris, from the voters of Paris on rental scooters, not so much about this kind of violence, but about the the larger issue about scooters. You know, the way they drive, have you seen a couple? They don't wear helmets. Um, many of them, they weave in and out. They don't necessarily follow the lights. And when they're done with them, they jam the sidewalks. They just toss them on the sidewalks. So that's bad for driving and that's bad for pedestrians, isn't it? Any reactions? I'll just offer one that. Yeah, you, I mean, this, sorry, this go ahead. Elise. There we have a little delay. Sorry, Elise, go ahead. Oh no, sorry about that. Yeah, I was just going to say, echoing Joni. I mean, it, it does seem like everything. I think the incident with Elijah is, you know, I, I think less about scooters and and more about this, you know, exhausting gun violence. Um, and it's just so tragic that you know this. The, this ended up taking the life of a really well-known activist in Seattle. But um, even still, I mean, I, I certainly feel the tension as a Seattle resident between e-scooter riders and, and car drivers. I personally don't ride e-scooters very much because they terrify me. But uh, but driving around them, I worry about hitting them all the time. And it's it's like Joni said, I mean, weaving in and out of traffic and there's sometimes multiple people on them. And again, it just seems a little bit chaotic sometimes. Yeah, we asked our um, community feedback folks. We have uh, you know listeners who will ask about news topics, and Ed in Bremerton uh, agreed there, saying scooters are almost silent. That puts pedestrians in danger. They're more unstable than e-bikes because of the small wheels and streets in poor condition. However, Maggie in Seattle says bikes have far more fatalities and collisions than scooters. I don't know if this is what Maggie says is true or not, but and and how many different how many people ride bikes versus scooters. But Maggie's point is, she goes on and says it doesn't mean we should ban bikes. Create a helmet option like they have for rental bikes in BC, Vancouver, and let people enjoy scooters. Also, the scooter rider 
who was shot was not the fault of the scooter, but of our mind-numbingly atrocious, atrocious gun laws, as someone has mentioned. But I would add to what to Maggie's point that you could also say some of these things about cars that that uh, cars collide with vehicles with people. Drivers in cars have road rage and carry guns. So again. How much is the? Are you mostly talking about the scooters being scattered on the sidewalk? No, I'm not mostly talking about that. I'm talking about all the behavior. Yes, of course, there are horrible uh, car drivers. There are unsafe bike riders. The question is, and and I I just think it's more for discussion than sort of insta ban. But I think you know cities, other cities, uh, West Hollywood, California, Winston Salem, North Carolina, um, are banning them. Others have sort of. Um, Done, try, done trials like a one-year ban on them. That would be in Columbia, South Carolina. I'm just saying we really never had a big, giant conversation about whether scooters um, – we know that they're climate-friendly. That's why this is a difficult discussion. Mm-hmm. It's not simple. But the question is, should we talk about whether this mix is working for us or not? And I'd like to do it with data. I'd like to know what, what number of accidents are caused in relationship to the number of people who benefit from a ride from them. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and I'll just bring up, too, whenever they the scooters first got introduced here in Seattle, I interviewed a doctor at Harborview who told me that they had seen a vast increase in um, head trauma from people coming in because they weren't wearing helmets and things like that. So, I mean, I think you know, if this is going to be an option that we're going to look at permanently to to have, you know, as an alternative to driving, there needs to be some some mechanisms in place so that everybody can do it safely. Yeah, that's fair. And that's a, there's a separate debate going on about helmet laws and whether um, and, and we let go sh- of our helmets yeah. as a requirement in, in King County. People just aren't when they're sharing scooters and bikes. It's not going to happen. There's not going to be consistent helmet wearing. Well, so, okay. So that should be part of the discussion as well. I mean, I don't think it, there's a – we should talk about whether a decision made in one arena makes sense for uh, other things that we're concerned about. We're yeah. concerned about, um, you know v- – Car, car wrecks, more and more uh, accidents have been reported this year nationwide. What, what, what's the reason? Yep. Trade-offs, trade-offs. We're talking about the news of the week with political analyst Joni Balter, McClatchy's Washington State government reporter Shauna Sowersby, and Seattle Times health reporter Elise Takahama. We're going to take a short break, and we're going to get to the future of taxes around here and whatever happened to... Uh, defunding the police slash setting up alternatives to the police. And then we're going to tell you at least one, I can guarantee you one, uplifting, wonderful story. You should stay tuned because this I think this will make you feel better about human beings. <laughs> okay. We could use that. Uh, we'll take a short break. Be right back. It's 12.40, and you are listening to 94.9 KUOW, Seattle's NPR news station. You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review and or watching it as it's on Facebook and YouTube live. I'm Bill Radke. Seattle officials tell KUOW they're considering a local tax on capital gains. As KUOW reporter David Hyde reminded us, our state Supreme Court recently allowed a statewide capital gains tax, and it might come to Seattle. I will have that little audio clip for you in just a moment. Yes, so we have capital gains statewide on the way, maybe in Seattle too. It's part of the array of tax options that are going to be evaluated and analyzed. That's Councilmember Teresa Mosqueda. She co-chairs a work group that's trying to find new revenue sources for the city. Mosqueda says a capital gains tax is just one of the ideas on the table. In a written statement, Mayor Bruce Harrell's office also says the city's looking into the possibility of a local capital gains tax. David Hyde, KUOW News. First of all, Joni, I always want to make sure all our listeners are with us. Maybe you should remind us what a capital gains tax is and who would pay it. Statewide, we know, and then we can talk about whether we know what's going to happen. Well, statewide, it's a tax on proceeds from the sale of like stocks and bonds mm-hmm. uh, above 250000 Not so, including your retirement account, not, a, not including, including your, your home. home. Your home. Right. Yeah. 
So uh, to be clear here, there is no shape yet to the Seattle idea. It's just something they're not even really proposing this yet. Uh, They said that the Supreme Court, the city of Seattle said the Supreme Court ruling uh, is an example of many things that they're thinking of to um, fill a budget gap. The gap is real, and nobody likes to hear this. It's partly because downtown Seattle is not producing the revenues that um, it normally does. Tech is laying off some people, so that um, is – it's just one of the items they're discussing. Mm -hmm. My question, and I feel like you knew I would say this somehow, um, who is adding up the various taxes uh, that are coming at us or that are increasing from one year – um, after another, I'm referring now to an expanded housing levy, expanded by a lot, I might say. And then here, here's the important point on that. This is a compassionate city. Uh, pretty, I don't want to say everybody, but many people here know that we need to help our mental health situation, our housing um, inaffordability. They know that and that we need to help uh, crisis centers, public safety. There's a lot of Items that are very expensive and people, the good people of Seattle in general, want to fix those. But we have to ask over and over again, are we, by doing this list of good of goodies, trade-offs like you said, mm-hmm. this list of goodies, what are we doing to folks who are first-time homebuyers? What are we doing to folks who can barely pay their bills by adding these not only for to property owners but, you know, for renters? This, the, but, yes, we are talking before I open up to the floor. Yeah. We are talking in the in the case of capital gains about a tax on zillionaires. That right? is different. You're right. You're right. That is different. But it begs the question of all the other taxes that we are talking about in this city. Hmm. You're right. Um, thank you for that that point. Yeah, the housing levy is being I forget what the multiple is, but it's like a billion dollars. It's nine hundred and seventy million, and the last one, the last renewal of August of 2016. Was two hundred ninety million. So that's it's a big increase. Yeah, and it, that that's expiring. The, yeah. the, that current housing levy expiring. Okay. Any other questions, reactions, capital gains taxing, and other and budget holes? Yeah, I mean, same as Joni. I'm, I'm definitely. I have a lot of questions about you know how how this might work in Seattle. It sounds like it's not something that city council members are, are necessarily you know. Saying we're we're all full steam ahead. It's uh, as as the clip said, Councilmember Muscate is saying this is just one of one of several things that they're considering right now. But yeah, definitely curious about um, you know where the revenue would be going and how how exactly it would be split up. Um, it doesn't sound like that's something that has been uh, detailed at least on the Seattle level. Mm-hmm. And just to add, um, April twenty fifth. Uh, King County voters are looking at a billion plus levy. Um, and again, this is a pretty, pretty something we all are going to want to vote for, probably. I create, know about all of us. Not all of us. Create five mental health crisis centers. Yes. Behavioral Good idea, health. Yeah. important, yeah. expensive. Right. And the we should say that the part of the objection to the capital gains tax in Seattle, as what as happened statewide, is the idea that this is going to uh, GeekWire talked to some startup leaders about this who said that this is going to affect companies' decision to start here or expand here. Uh, again, that also has trade-offs. Well, you know, that brings tax revenue, but we've all been dealing with the growing pains that come with um, growth and and uh, high rolling companies too. So all that's happening at once. Well, I just wanted to add to that point, too. Um, I feel like this is an argument that's always made um, from that side. You know, oh, the businesses are not going to come in. They've still been coming in here. Businesses have, you know, not stopped or anything like that. Uh, You know, I think in the... We haven't had an income tax or a capital gains tax up to now. But yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Oh, you're fine. Just just to point that for listeners just sort of new to here. But I think to your point, uh, I think GeekWire also reported on some numbers backing up what you're saying that that there is less correlation than one might think between people moving in and out and the taxes they pay. Is that the Correct. idea? Correct. Yeah, I, I just think it's you know it's something that's been argued from the get go, um, and you know personally, I don't I don't really. F- foresee it having that big of an impact that it would, you know, really make that much of a difference. Well, you're right. You're right that businesses love to locate in the Seattle area. Absolutely true. But it's also true, a couple things, that Amazon 
and they're they're sort of unwinding this expansion, but when they were thinking of expansion about a year or two ago, said despite you know all the buildings they have here in Seattle, that they were going to put their um, emphasis now in Bellevue, and they began that, but then that was before all the layoffs. Mm-hmm. And then after um, the the ruling on the state capital gains tax, there was one company, it was in Camas, Washington, and I do forget the name of it, but it's moving to Texas. Hmm. Oh, yeah, Fisher Investments, I think is the one you're yeah. talking about. So, okay, last question on this. Do we know where, if Seattle, and it's not, it's not, it's not to the level of a proposal yet, right. but if Seattle were to tax capital gains, at, again, at this high level, do we know where the money would go? Well, I think they're looking at it for the fact that they, they have a budget gap. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes— That's less inspiring than telling people it's going to go for affordable housing. I know, housing but sometimes they'll, you know— They'll pass a tax and they'll rate it about two seconds after they yeah. after it's approved. So, yeah. uh, but since we don't know what the tax is, it's hard to know sort of how they can explain why we absolutely have to have this. Right. Okay. So we'll. Uh, I, I I know that uh, some Washington counties have adopted an income tax ban. They're getting ahead of this mostly Eastern Washington, but Seattle on the flip side of that may consider a possible proposal of the idea. Of the notion of a capital gains That's tax. That's probably too much carefulness kind of, right there, I Bill. I kind of expect it. I don't yeah. know why they wouldn't, but um, we'll see. Okay, next step in Seattle, we know that housing's a big deal, policing's a big deal, um, specifically that drive to take away from the Seattle Police Department matters that don't require an armed response. And the Seattle Times did an update on this, Elise, basically saying that uh, Mayor Harrell's progress is relatively slow. Why is that? Yeah, my my colleague Sarah Grace Taylor, who covers City Hall, um, did a a great story on this, but basically just looking at, you know, what Mayor Harrell promised on the campaign trail and and early on when he first took office. Um, And one of those things when we're talking about policing um, is coming at this with, you know, very holistic approach. Um, He had a quote that said, that you know, not all these not all these um, problems can be solved with a quote gun and badge response, and so that was, I think, in part trying to acknowledge um, the the point of view of you know many Seattleites who feel that the SPD system as it currently is is just not working, um, and this has been you know I think one of the most hotly debated topics of of last year, um, but he has. We, we basically just haven't seen a lot of a lot of movement on some of these police alternative promises. Um, Sarah Grace reported that we've seen, you know, of course, Mayor Harrell has has done something. He has, you know, for example, um, brought in a permanent police chief. He's attended morale boosting sessions for for existing officers. But um, but when it comes to things like civilian led, um, you know, police public safety department um, or, you know, having a team to respond to crisis calls, um, we just haven't gotten really gotten a meaningful update on that um, in, a, in a long time. And th- some of those deadlines have passed. And so we're basically asking, you know, what are we doing here? Um, is there anything that you can give us? And it doesn't seem like there has been. Yeah. Joni, could this be, A, another budget hole, <laughs> B, it's harder than we thought, C, could the mayor be not completely into these police alternatives and taking his time? What do you think? Well, I wouldn't give anybody that much credit on this because <laughs> I think it's just harder to do these things than people realize. Sometimes the resistance is in the form of staff ability to deliver. Sometimes it's the police union in this case. Some of this stuff mm. has to be uh, bargained. Uh, I do believe uh, that the mayor really would like, he mentions this a lot, uh, a third department that's a different way of policing. Um, it, as you said, he doesn't want to send the badge and gun out to everything, wants to send out social workers, mental health folks, where it makes sense. Uh, the council, the city council has gotten a little more focused on a pilot program whereby you try some of this. Uh, you do uh, wellness checks with people who you think could end up in precarious situations, uh, what they call man down uh, just, you know, it doesn't always require a police officer to be there. And so, I mean, they're all sort of pushing each other, which I think is kind of a good thing. Um, but a budget crisis actually would fit in here if they don't have enough money to um, to stand up this department or to begin their pilot. I think the mayor 
I don't know if it was actually the mayor. I think I think someone from the city, uh, from from the mayor's office and the executive branch, pointed to budget issues, and a, at least a couple of city councilors were calling bunk on that. Well, if you want to if you want to take that tack, you could ask. You know, so other cities like we're not the only city that experienced the protests and the need to rethink how we police. No, we're not. Um, Denver and Tucson. Uh, maybe their staffs work more cl- quickly. That's all. They they have moved forward ahead of us on these kinds of changes. Okay. Any more to say about um, police alternatives? Alternatives to policing? Do we cover it? I would just add one last thing mm-hmm. about the budget issues: is that yes, uh, the the mayor's office has definitely said pointed to that as kind of being a reason for the delays. And um, in response, city council members have basically said that's that's not a good excuse. Um, I think that especially um, a couple of them have basically said that you know if you if more funding is needed, then you know that's that's a different conversation about how to allocate more funding there. Of course, you know there's only so much money, but. Um, it, it, to, to some of these city council members, it felt a little bit more like, uh, you know, a cop out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Seattle Times, I think, quoted Lisa Herbold and Andrew Lewis. Yes, Joni. I would just say that when these proposals come up, let's look at who's voting for them. You know, it, you know, are you there or when the mayor's out collecting votes for the third department that he would like? What's the number? Who's saying mm-hmm. I'll be with you? Yeah, uh, we have about five minutes left in the show. I really want to tell this story, <laughs> and I really want to hear what else made you smile this week. So think about it. Um, have have you seen the video? Am I the only one who's seen this video of the skier on Mount Baker? I oh. saw half of it. I saw half of it. You watched then... half of the greatest <laughs> no. video of all time? Yes, because because I, I'm pretty sure my phone rang or, you know, like that. Oh, <laughs> It's terrible. Terrible Tony, conduct. How do you turn your head away from this thing? So, Not memorable to go back, according to Joni. <laughs> oh, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was incredible. It was, this, at least you know what I'm talking about. So this skier on Mount Baker found a snowboard. Well, let me just tell you in real time. So you're watching this video. The skier's wearing a GoPro-type um, video camera. So you can see him skiing the backcountry. He's squeezing through trees, right? The whole, that whole deal. And suddenly, really fast, you barely see something colorful off to the side. I caught this little flash of red out of the corner of my eye. and I knew it was weird because we're out of bounds. Ski patrol wouldn't mark any terrain there. Uh, you know, there'd be no lollipops or anything like that. So it made me stop and take a second look back. And that's where I saw that, uh, you know, the salmon snowboard there, the, the bright red graphic going back and forth in the snow. And I knew that there was somebody, you know, trapped in the tree well and that they were still alive, clearly and that I, I needed to get to them as, as quick as possible. This is the skier in the situation, Francis Zuber from Bellingham, telling KOW's Kim Malcolm the story. So I'm not sure exactly what a lollipop is. It probably marks a tree well. A tree well meaning the area around the base of a tree, right? You can, it's easy to sink in there. So he's, he's done this before. Uh, the skier knows what he's doing. He sees that snowboard, and he stops and turns, and the snowboard is wiggling just slightly. And it's, but it's a few feet away from him, and he can't get there through the snow. It takes him more than a minute to reach the snowboarder. Do you know how long a minute feels when is this guy breathing? You know, he and he is struggling, and, and it just feels like forever. It feels like a Seattle winter in length. You know, the snow was incredibly deep that day. It had snowed somewhere around four feet throughout the week, and it was very light snow, very difficult to move uphill through. And you see when I step out of my skis, you know, I, I say some things that we can't say on the radio because I realized in that moment how deep the snow was. And it was, you know, it was really, like, really scary. I, I thought that this person was going to die because I couldn't get to them in time. So he's grunting and cussing, and he is not getting anywhere. How long can this snowboarder live? Are they breathing? Eventually, the skier reaches him, and he's totally out of breath. And now he has to begin digging. And it just seems like he's spent. So, And this is for a human who could die potentially any second. So he takes off his backpack, and this skier is so prepared, he has a two-piece shovel in there, as he should, and he starts digging and bailing and digging and bailing, and the snowboarder keeps wiggling, and eventually you see the guy's goggles, and then you see his mouth. Oh, you okay? You all right? <sighs> Okay, you're good. You're good. I got you. You okay? Can you breathe? 
Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. We're both gonna catch our breath for a sec. I'm gonna help dig you out, okay? Thank you. Yeah, no problem, man. You're good. Oh, oh so this, oh this snowboarder, Ian Steger, they've been hanging out together. He was telling Kim Malcolm about this. They went skiing together last weekend. And the thing is, the snowboarder, Ian, is quite experienced, has friends who he was with who were experienced, had the right gear. They were in communication, and it still happened. So his lesson is don't get too comfortable even in an area you know well. It can happen to you, whether it's your first time skiing or your thousandth time skiing uh, that same slope. And on top of that, just being trained and having all the proper gear, if you're going to be in that kind of terrain, you should be not always expecting it to take a turn for the worse because that'll ruin the fun a little bit, but you should be ready if it does happen so that way you know what, what to do and you can rely on that training and not have to improvise right there on the spot. You know, I'm doing a series about words right now. Once a week, I drop a words in review episode, and one of the words that has come up is how overused the word hero is. I'm going to allow it this time. <laughs> you got to allow it. I'm going to let, let it in. I think it's okay in this case. Okay. All, <laughs> right. Go. All right. So Joni wasn't interested enough to see if the guy No, no, bad, I was interested. But... <laughs> oh. Honestly, have you ever been called away to something? Yes, I, I kid. Come I kid. On. Anything else that makes you smile <laughs> this week? Um, I was very excited to hear that the Pixies and Modest Mouse are coming to Seattle later oh. this year. It's a childhood dream come true. So. Yes. Thank you. Being of a certain age, I, I I love that. Anybody else? I'm more of a certain age than you yeah, are. I, think, I was not a child. I think Joni and I are... Yes, Elise. <laughs> yeah, I think Joni and I are both really excited about the cherry blossoms uh, in bloom now. I, uh, I'll, I'll let her speak to her expertise, of course. I, I'm just a viewer. I, uh, I love going up to see the UW cherry blossoms every year, even though... I was, I, and I was telling you all, I kind of regret it every time because of the crowds and the TikToking. And, yes. But, you know, once you're there, it's so beautiful. It's just hard to be resentful once you're actually standing in the middle of that, that squad. And Joni well, you covered it. You covered it beautifully. Yeah. My smile is way less impactful than Bill's smile. Okay. So um, in honor of Easter, I'm starting to see some bunnies again around the neighborhood. <laughs> and uh, they're cool. I know that. Um, that uh, bunnies will uh, get eaten by some cats. That's just how it goes. <laughs> so the cats are smiling. Joni Balter, thank you for being on the show. Sweet. Always great to see you. Political analyst Joni Balter, McClatchy, Washington State government reporter Shauna Sowersby. Thanks for doing the show. Thanks for having me. Seattle Times health reporter, get healthier, Elise Takahama, and thanks for doing the show. Thanks so much. Nice to see you all. Thank you, producer Kevin Kniestet and Bernard Ouellette, and we'll see you all again next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.